Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of Messianic Judaism for all nations. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. As Yaakov returned to the Promised Land, he prepared to meet his brother Esau by dividing his family into two camps. He said, If Esau comes to the one camp and destroys it, then the camp that is left will be for a paleta, that is, a remnant, an escape, or a refuge. Genesis 32.8. So, again, if Esau comes to one camp and destroys it, then the camp that is left will be for a refuge. Yaakov and Esau actually embraced and enjoyed a tearful reconciliation. It's a touching moment. It's the climactic resolution of the conflict between these two brothers who have been in competition since before they were born. Remember, they were wrestling while still in the womb. And what were they wrestling for? They were wrestling for the right of firstborn to inherit the land of Israel. All of this alludes to the reconciliation that will occur between Israel and the nations at the time of the redemption, it says in Zechariah. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. The Targum says, a miracle was wrought for Jacob that day. That is the day that he reconciled with Esau. What was the miracle? It was peace between brothers, a cessation of hostilities that allowed Jacob to return to the promised land with his family, Yaakov, whose name is now Israel, to return to the promised land with his family and to dwell therein without fear of Esau. Nevertheless, Yaakov did not assume that his brother's good graces would last forever. When Esau urged him to return to Seir in the land of Edom, Yaakov accepted the invitation, but he begged permission to follow slowly later, moving along at a, at a leisurely pace. He claimed that his flocks could not be driven hard. He said, you go on ahead. He says, please, my Lord, go on ahead. I will travel more slowly at the pace of the cattle ahead of me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. That's Genesis thirty-three fourteen. Where is this Mount Seir? It's across the Rift Valley from the Promised Land in modern Jordan, across the Dead Sea, part of the elevated ridge that overlooks the Dead Sea in Israel. So why did Esau live outside the Promised Land? Because Yaakov had taken his blessing and inheritance in the land. This is, a, it says in our Torah portion. So Yaakov promises Esau that he'll move along slowly at the pace of the cattle, the pace of the children until he arrives at Esau's home in Transjordan, uh, at his home on Mount Seir. In reality, he had no intention whatsoever of crossing back over the Yardane River, once more leaving the land and ascending into the heights of Edom, Mount Seir, which is, uh, as I said, the elevated ridge overlooking the Dead Sea. Instead, Yaakov comes back to Eretz Yisrael to dwell in Eretz Yisrael, and that's why, he's, that's why he's there. He's not about to leave the land again. But what are we to make of this reply then? Yaakov promised Esau that he would come to him at Seir, Esau's mountain. Is Yaakov lying to him? They reconcile, and then one minute later he's lying to him? 
The prophet Micah says, you give truth to Jacob. You give truth to Yaakov. So we associate uh, Yaakov Avinu with truth. But here, it looks like we caught him in a lie. Rabbi Abahu searched the scriptures. But he could not find any place where it ever said that Jacob went to Esau at Seir. So Rabbi Abahu asked, could Yaakov have told a lie to deceive Esau? Certainly not. Instead, Rabbi Abahu concludes that Yaakov will yet fulfill his promise in the Messianic era. As it says at the end of our Haftarah portion in Obadiah 21, the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. I want to take a look at that Haftarah portion, the book of Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Tanakh. It's the only one. It's, it's, it's just one chapter long. And we read the whole thing for the Haftarah for this Parsha, for uh, the Torah portion by Yishlak. It's the Haftarah for today because Esau figures prominently into the Torah portion. And the Torah portion then concludes with a recitation of the ancestry of the tribes of Edom and the rulers of Edom, the kingdom of Esau. And the entire book of Obadiah is an oracle addressed to Edom. It's a whole oracle addressed to the kingdom of Esau. Now, you may or may not realize this, but after the destruction of the temple in the days of the apostles, the sages, Chazal, recontextualized the oracles and utterances against Edom as oracles against Rome. The rabbis used Esau and the character of Esau and the kingdom of Edom as a cipher, like a code language for discussing the Roman Empire during an era when doing so openly in the study halls and or in the writings and their teachings would have resulted in their arrest, the, their arrest and crucifixion. So instead of saying the Romans this and the Romans that, they said Esau this, Edom that. Anyway, I don't want to go there right now, or not just yet. I want to give you, instead of that, I want to give you instead of that Midrashic interpretation of Edom, I want to give you the historical context of the prophecy of Avadja. Avadja, Obadiah, as far as I can tell, was a prophet contemporary with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That is to say, he lived at the time of the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, and the flight of the refugees from Judah. He saw the deportation of the captives as they were hauled off to Babylon. And he also saw how the neighboring kingdom of Edom took advantage of the war with Babylon, joined forces with the Babylonians because of their hatred for the Jewish people, who were both their next-door neighbors and also their distant cousins, going back to the brothers Jacob and Esau. These Edomites assisted in the siege of Jerusalem, in the ramsack of the temple. Tear it down, tear it down, they said. They looted the city. Then, as, they, as the refugees were fleeing, they put up checkpoints at the border crossings to arrest refugees who were trying to escape from the Babylonians. And they cut them down as they fled, or they handed them over to the Babylonians. So for these crimes against Israel, the prophet Ovadia rises up, and pronounces an oracle against the kingdom of Edom. And in the oracle, the Lord announces his judgment on the Edomites for their collusion with the Babylonians in sacking Jerusalem. It's a, it's a simple message. It's not complex. 
It harkens back to the covenant in which God promises to curse those who curse his people. And just as Judah has faced a day of the Lord with the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, uh, the prophet says that a similar day lies in store for Edom and also for all nations. So Obadiah chastises the Edomites for their mistreatment of Judah and their exaltation in Judah's day of disaster. Judah, on the other hand, will be restored, will execute judgment over Edom, over the Edomites, and become the Lord's kingdom on earth. That's what the, that's what the prophecy says. So the beginning of the oracle depicts the Edomites dwelling in arrogance like an eagle in her mountain heights. But the conclusion of the book reverses that scenario, and the mountains of Edom become subject to the rulers who ascend Mount Zion, who ascend Mount Zion. So it's a complete reversal of power and a reversal of Edom's circumstance. Let's look at a few of these specific passages, but as we do so, I want to do as the rabbis did in the days of the apostles and recontextualize the prophecy. Let's think about the prophecy of Obadiah, not only in its historical context, but also in light of current circumstances, the October 7 massacre, the Gaza war, the reaction of the Arab world, the reaction among the Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank, the reaction in Jordan, in Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, Turkey, Iran, and so forth, and the reaction in the United Nations, the reaction on the streets of London and New York, the reaction in the the academia of the college campuses, the reaction on the BBC, uh, the reaction of mainstream journalism, the reaction of social media, the reaction of X, the reaction on, on TikTok, and the reaction of the progressive liberal left, and so on and so forth. In the previous teaching, I suggested to you that there is a demonic and spiritual force motivating anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. It's a spiritual force in that spirit is like the wind that blows, which cannot be seen, but you see its effects and you hear its sound. That's what the master says. We see the effects and we hear the sound. It's supernatural in that it connects these otherwise disparate agendas around the world. The anti-Western propaganda of Russia and China, the anti-Jewish dogmas of Nazism and old European anti-Semitism the anti-Jewish fervor of the jihadi Muslim religion, the anti-Zionist pledge of the Arab nations, the anti-Jewish rot of white supremacy, the anti-Israel political bigotry of the United Nations, the anti-Jewish and anti-Zionist dogmas of traditional Christian theology, the anti-Israel academic sophistry of our schools and educators, the rabid anti-Israel foment of the progressive liberal left. Did I leave anyone out? Most of these have little or nothing in common with one another. Even within themselves, strange bedfellows. For example, Sunni Muslims hate Shia Muslims as much as they hate Jews. And Shia Muslims hate Sunni Muslims as much as they hate Jews. To the extent that I would be willing to bet that more Muslims will be killed in genocidal wars between Sunni and Shia Muslims in a single decade, perhaps in a single year, than have been killed by Israel in 70 years 
So how is it that Iran, which is fiercely Shiite, has allied itself with Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood, which is completely Sunni? But all these differences get set aside in the name of hatred for Israel. Why? I believe it's because there is a spiritual power behind it. The same spiritual power that animated the Nazi genocide of the Jewish people in the 1930s and 1940s. A real genocide and not just made up political mumbo jumbo and propaganda, but a real genocide that happened not even a century ago when one third of the Jewish people on planet Earth were systematically murdered. If we were to strip back all the pious pretenses, all the righteous indignation, and say, what's really going on here? What's the underlying spiritual power that's fueling this irrational hatred for Israel, for Zion, and for the Jewish people worldwide? It reduces very quickly to one simple idea, a war against God. Because the Jewish people are the priestly nation, a priesthood among the nations, meaning that they represent God, whether they want to or not, whether they want to be chosen or not, whether they want to be religious or not, whether they are religious or not. And as such, their existence alone testifies to the existence of God and the truth of the scriptures and the promises therein. As the prophet Ezekiel said, so long as the Jewish people languish in exile outside of the land of Israel, God's promises are broken and his name is profaned among the nations. And the nations can laugh at God and at his promises and at his people. That's what it means to say that his name is profaned among the nations, as Ezekiel says. But when God's people are returned to the land and are living in the land of Israel as promised in the Torah and predicted in the prophets, then God's name is sanctified among the nations. This is what Ezekiel says. This is why we pray. Hallowed be thy name. Sanctified be your name. Let your name be sanctified. We're praying for the redemption. Therefore, if you want to profane God's name, destroy his reputation, deny his existence, deny his power, defy his power, you need to get the Jewish people out of the land of Israel. I'm not suggesting that the different players are consciously thinking this through, like this is their agenda, that these thoughts have somehow crystallized in their minds. Assuredly, they are completely ignorant of the scriptures. Instead, it's a spiritual agenda, like wind, which blows everything in its path in a certain direction. You can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. Like the old saying, you can see which way the wind is blowing. But let's picture this. Let's imagine the prophet Obadiah, Ovadia, rising up again in our day, rising up like Shmuel at Endor, taking his stand, addressing the UN General Assembly and Human Rights Council, speaking to the members of the Arab League, publicly 
rebuking and shaming the regime of the Ayatollahs in Iran, unburdening his soul by taking the microphone away from Nasrallah of Hezbollah, interrupting the shouting imams in the mosques of the Middle East before Friday prayers, glowering over Queen Rania of Jordan, silencing the pundits of Russian propaganda-driven media, denouncing the priests of the Orthodox Church and Putin's pawns, addressing the pilgrims gathered for mass outside St. Peter's in Rome, taking a feature spot on BBC, then CNN, then NPR, prophesying against UNICEF, Amnesty International, the World Health Organization, the corrupt NGOs operating under the sponsorship of the EU and the sponsorship of the United Nations, facing off with Europe's political elites, convening a hearing of the Senate and House of Representatives, live streaming over X, breaking through the algorithm of TikTok with his appearance, appearing before the demonstrators in London, in New York, in Washington, D.C., addressing the student DBS movement and free Palestine demonstrators at Columbia, Berkeley, Harvard, MIT, etc., lifting up his voice in the oracle against Edom. The prophet Obadiah declares, you should not have gloated over your kinsmen, on their day of disaster, or rejoiced over the people of Judah on the day of their destruction. You should not have spoken arrogantly on the day of trouble, or entered the gate of my people on the day of their calamity. No, you should not have gloated over their suffering on the day of their calamity, or laid hands on their treasure on the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives or hand over their survivors on the day of trouble. For the day of the Lord is near for all nations. The day of Hashem is near for all nations. As you did, it will be done to you. Your dealings will come back on your own head. For just as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so will all nations drink in turn. Yes, they will drink and gulp it down and be as if they had never existed. And this is the message of Obadiah, Obadiah verses 12 through 16. The day of Hashem draws near when he will make war against the nations that make war against his people, that oppress his people, that gloat over his people, or rejoice on their day of trouble. That is the day of Mashiach. That is the day that is coming when the Messiah will come forth with garments stained red from the splatter of blood. As it says in Isaiah 63, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trod in the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come.
The day of Hashem is called the day of vengeance in this prophecy. And this prophecy from Isaiah 63 correlates with the prophecy, it's actually the same prophecy, just an extension of the prophecy from Isaiah 61, which our master read in the synagogue of Nazareth as the programmatic text that explained who he is and what his program is about and what the message of the good news is that he proclaimed, where it said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has made me Mashiach to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But leaving Isaiah aside and going back to Obadiah, we read in verse 17, it says, But on Mount Zion, on Mount Zion, there will be a holy remnant who will escape, a paleta, a remnant, a refuge, an escape. And the house of Jacob will repossess their rightful inheritance. In the last years of his life, the renowned spiritual leader, Chofetz Chaim, Rabbi Israel Merkagin, predicted a dark era of tribulation about to descend upon the Jewish people. He foresaw an unprecedented time of suffering and sorrow. The meaning of these troubling visions and prognostications about the future became clear to everyone when Hitler came to power in 1933. Hitler promised a future world without Jews. And a world empire, a Reich, a kingdom, that would endure for 1,000 years. Why? Why a kingdom that will last for 1,000 years? Because he was the embodiment of the spirit of Antichrist, who swept his people up with rhetoric so that, in the eyes of his supporters, he could do no wrong. And wrong became right, and right became wrong, under the power of his influence. When Hitler came to power, the heads of the yeshivas of European Jewry came together and asked the Chofetz Chaim, Will Hitler's plans to destroy the Jewish people succeed? Chas v'shalom, God forbid, the Chofetz Chaim answered. No one has ever been able to completely destroy the Jewish nation. There is a simple verse in the Torah that says, If Esau comes to the one camp and destroys it, then the camp that is left will be for a refuge, for a pleita. By then... Europe was already no longer safe for Jews. Esau was already coming down on that camp, so they asked him, And where will the remaining camp that survives find refuge? The Chofetz Chaim replied, This too is clear from the prophets. In the prophet Obadiah it says, But in Mount Zion, in Mount Zion, there shall be a refuge, a paleta, a refuge, a remnant. So compare the two verses. On the one hand, in Genesis 32.8, it says, If Esau comes to the one camp and destroys it, then the camp that is left will be for refuge. But in Obadiah 1.17, it says, In Mount Zion there shall be a refuge. And both verses use this same word, uh, a pleta, a remnant, a refuge, a salvation, an escape. 
In the last months before his death, the Chofetz Chaim repeated this message many times to Jewish leaders, urging Jews to leave Europe and take refuge in Palestine before it was too late. The Chofetz Chaim took this to mean that Jews would no longer be safe in Europe, but they would survive in Eretz Yisrael, which is exactly what happened. The remnant that fled to Eretz Yisrael, which at that time was British Mandate Palestine, escaped the fires of Europe. How did the Chofetz Chaim foresee this? He did not, but the prophet Obadiah did. Not only was there refuge, not only did they escape, but the prophet Obadiah went on to say, and the house of Jacob will repossess their rightful inheritance. What is their rightful inheritance? It's Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. This is only one of many such passages throughout the Tanakh, throughout the prophets, and also in the New Testament that speak about a surviving remnant of Israel that will endure to the end, despite the attempts of the nations to snuff out the existence of the nation. In the New Testament, the apostles considered themselves to be representatives of this surviving remnant who would weather through the coming times of calamity to receive the reward in the day of Hashem at the coming of the Messiah. So they referred to themselves as the remnant and as the assembly of Messiah, the survivors who endure to the end, whether through martyrdom or God's miraculous protection. That's my current best understanding of the meaning behind the New Testament word ecclesia, which means assembly. It's short for the assembly of Israel, which we translate as church. It doesn't mean the church. It was never intended to mean something outside of Israel, such as the Gentile church or a new religion or a new religious order. Instead, a religious community within Israel preparing for the coming of the Messiah, the assembly of Messiah, that intended to be reckoned among the remnant who will be saved from the coming wrath of God. In those days, the apostles could see which way the wind was blowing. They saw the imperial rule of Rome tightening its grip, demanding to impose its religious order, all nations turning against the Jewish people, a people set apart, a peculiar people. They saw a revolutionary storm brewing in Israel, a dark cloud of exile looming over them. Today, it feels to me that the wheel has spun around again, and we are back to the age of the apostles, or if you like, back to the era of the Crusades, or if you like, back to the time of the Inquisitions, or perhaps back to the build-up to World War II. And that's why the prophet Obadiah is rising up to speak again. And his words ring so true and so clear to address current events and attitudes. Let me finish the prophecy. In that day, when the Messiah comes, there will be this sudden reversal of fortunes. And the little remnant, the refuge, the pleita that survives in Zion will be like a fire, and the nation of Israel will be like a flame that sets the nations ablaze, like a flame to dry straw. I'm going to finish reading the prophet Obadiah, 
but I'm going to substitute the modern analog for the geographical references that are mentioned here so that you can clearly see the geopolitical realities of the coming kingdom of Messiah and put them on a modern map of the world, if you like. It says, the house of Jacob, that is the Jewish people, will be a fire and the house of Joseph, that is the exiles of Israel, a flame setting a flame and consuming the stubble, which is the house of Esau. Geographically speaking, that is Palestinian Jordan. None of the house of Esau will remain, for Hashem has spoken. Those in the Negev, that's the south of Israel, will repossess the mountain of Esau, that is modern Jordan. And those in the Shephelah, in the lowlands, of the Plishtim of the Philistines, that is the Gaza Strip. They will repossess the field of Ephraim and the field of Shomron, that is the West Bank, Judah and Samaria, including Nablus, Janine, and Ramallah. And Benjamin will occupy Gilead, that is northern Jordan, into the Golan Heights. Those from this army of the people of Israel exiled among the Canaanim as far away as Tsarifat, that is, Ashkenazi Jews of France, and the exiles from Yerushalayim in Sephardi, that is, Sephardi Jews of Spain, will repossess the cities in the Negev. Then the victorious will ascend to Mount Zion, that is, Jerusalem, to rule over Mount Esau, that is, Mount Seir in Jordan. But the kingship the kingdom will belong to Hashem. The mountain of Esau is Mount Seir. Jacob will keep his promise to Esau in the day of the Lord, the Messianic era, when his children will rule over the kingdom of Jordan. But what's the takeaway from all this? Esau is coming, but a remnant will survive. Now, maybe we cannot go to Zion to find that refuge. But we can cast our allegiance with Zion. My takeaway is that this matters and should matter to us. Because we need to be careful which side we choose in a conflict like this. We don't want to be on the side of those who should not have gloated over your kinsmen on the day of their disaster or rejoiced over the people of Judah on the day of their destruction, should not have spoken arrogantly on the day of trouble. Instead, we want to be on the side with King Messiah, because that's what it ultimately means to be part of his assembly of survivors, of those who endure to the end, clinging to the testimony of Yeshua and the commandments of God. Not about a certain creed or sacrament, as much as about clinging to the good news of Yeshua, who, who came to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul